Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Pod. Today is August 19th. I'm Braden Dennis, joined by my co-host Simon Belanger. Simon, how you doing, man? I'm good. Uh, excited to get started. We have lots to talk about today. Uh, stealing most of the headlines is the Oracle of Omaha himself. Warren Buffett's 13F came out. And for those who don't know, 13F is basically a regulatory filing for large asset managers to file what they're doing, what moves they're making with public securities uh, every quarter. So that's a 13F. And people are obviously very interested in when Buffett's comes out. Uh, last time it was he's selling all the airlines. And uh, this time it was honestly more surprising to me um, than him being a seller of airlines because even in Q2, Buffett was still a net seller of stocks. Um, what was your main takeaways? Obviously, Simon, the shocking offloading of a lot of bank stocks. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't know. It's hard to be surprised by it, especially because one of those big holdings that he was selling off was Wells Fargo. And if uh, some of you have been following a little bit uh, in the news, but also, um, you know, when earnings come out, Wells Fargo has just been a... Uh, a disaster for the past like three years there's been three four years i think there's been scandals there's been the restrictions placed on them can the u.s they actually have regulatory uh, bodies that will tell the banks how much they can pay in dividends and buy back shares so it's been really hard time for wells fargo and uh, berkshire has been a pretty a uh, big holder in terms of uh, percentage. I think they've always been close to 10%, which triggers, if you go over that, some re regulatory filings and more complications. And Buffett has always kind of defended Wells Fargo. Uh, but banks as a whole, I mean, I'm not overly surprised, mainly because the uh, environment going forward, it gets difficult for banks um, to make a lot of money, uh, especially when interest rates go down because the spread between the money that they, uh, the interest that they collect and that they lend out tends to get smaller. So less profit margin on that. So I'm not surprised from that perspective. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get it. The low interest rates, not the best situation for banks. Um, but he did then more recently add to Bank of America, I was not surprised at the Wells Fargo trim. Uh, I think that was coming. That was coming uh, regardless. Uh, Wells Fargo has been, you know, not the most honest of banks. So, you know, and and the the company has struggled. It's been a crappy culture. It's just in retail, and they don't uh, they don't have a lot of the capital markets segments that a lot of the other banks do. Um, you know, the, the premium in that class is probably JP Morgan when it comes to American banks. Um, and they have had that backbone of capital markets, um, along with some of the other banks as well. So it's interesting to see how that plays out. Um, you know, they put these massive loan loss provisions, same, same story here in Canada, 
uh, with the banks and then hopefully they come around and say it's not that bad and they throw that back into the earnings in the following quarter. Um, so that's kind of the main thing. But perhaps the most surprising of all is his new, not massive, I think it's pretty small, it's only $600 million, I believe, of his new per, uh, position in Barrick Gold, which is actually a Toronto-based gold miner. And uh, I think the headlines came out big on, like, Finn Twitter and, you know, the other news outlets. Gets a lot of headlines because the New York Stock Exchange uh, ticker for Barrick Gold is gold. Uh, lucky for them. And, you know, oh, Buffett buys gold, who's been, you know, if you listen to our gold episode, Buffett has been a perennial bear on gold. And he has other guys working for him, so you don't know if it's a Buffett trade or whatever, but at least it's a miner. I mean, I don't think Buffett would go out and go buy a sizable amount of gold. Um, He's been very, very vocal about how he thinks gold does nothing for you it just sits there it's it's just pretty it doesn't uh do anything it doesn't provide income he's been saying that for decades so a lot of people are coming out and saying like what's going on like uh you know what is going on over there at berkshire and i mean who's to say if it was his buy it's a very small position in the grand scheme of things, the amount of cash that uh, Berkshire has sitting on its balance sheet. But I was still surprised to see this position. Um, at least it's a minor. What was your thoughts when you saw, you know, the Oracle buying Barrick Gold? Um, yeah, a little surprised at the beginning, but the more I thought about it, the more I'm not overly surprised is because uh, Buffett has shown that he's not uh, afraid to get into commodities in general in terms of businesses. And it's important to, I think, for people to differentiate that he's buying a gold company. He's also buying an established gold company. Barrick Gold is one of the bigger world, worldwide players. Um, I'm not extremely familiar with them but my understanding is they have a pretty low cost on an ounce of gold they have a lot of gold reserves and they do pay a dividend as well so there is you know there is some reasoning behind it and Buffett has shown that he's not afraid to invest in oil for example so um, yeah if you think a little bit about it I don't think it's overly surprising I mean it's a very small take stake I mean it's you know it's just a drop in the bucket when it comes to, to total investment for um for Berkshire. I don't own any Berkshire Hathaway stock. Uh, I've never actually have never been a shareholder. Uh, no offense to, to Warren and Charlie Munger, but it seems like this huge basket of cash has just been such a drag for them. Uh, you know, everyone was kind of waiting for Buffett to make some massive move. And then we had the huge market correction uh, in Q1. And now in Q2, there's this rebound. And uh, into Q3, everything's gravy. But it's like, I'm, I am surprised that he is still a net seller. Um, you know, he is the perennial optimist. So I got to say, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm never would ever dare bet against uh, Warren Buffett, the greatest investor of all time. But at the same time, 
I'd be lying if I said I wasn't very surprised. And, and if I was a shareholder, I'd be a little bit frustrated. I would, I would definitely be frustrated that he's still sitting on that obscene basket of cash and just waiting for something to happen that, you know, it happened and you didn't do anything. So, I, I mean, who's to say we could, he could get the last laugh if there's another massive drop um, and he capitalizes. I, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. I mean, in his defense, he's, uh, you know, people were saying that in uh, the early 2000s, late 1990s as well about Buffett. And it might take a decade until he's proven right. Like, who knows? But um, yeah, I, I'm like you. It's uh, Some of the moves are a bit uh, head, sc- head scratcher for me. I hope Warren is able to do that in a decade. The guy will be 100. So <laughs> I'm not betting against him for uh, getting 100. That's for sure. <laughs> All, all those uh, Coca-Colas he drinks for breakfast, it's got to be doing something for him. Uh, he seems to be <laughs> be uh, as wise as ever. Anyway, so that's the uh, that's the scoop on what uh, what Buffett's been buying. What have you been buying, Simon? Uh, well, there's uh, so in the past couple months, I haven't bought a whole lot. I bought three stocks, so some of them that I actually talked on the podcast about so uh you won't be surprised i bought some uh, dlr some digital realty trust started a position that after i talked about it um started a position in uh livongo actually uh last week when the price dropped after the merger um i think i mentioned it on the podcast i just i kind of i like the business and i want to have a part of it if the merger doesn't go through with Teladoc. So I started a small position. Is there some that. arbitrage there as well? Yeah, I mean, there is a little bit. So it hasn't been completely in lockstep. So um, the Vongo, I think, uh, has been trading a little cheaper than the actual agreement if you compare the like the price of Teladoc, the percentage, and then the added dollar value. It's been pretty close, but again, there's always some uncertainty there in terms of whether it'll be approved or not. And that those are things that do happen. But I started a small position in them, and I um, started a position in Store uh, Capital Group. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Oh, that was another one Buffett bought. We missed that one. Yeah, yeah. He did buy store. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, after I heard that, I dug into it and there's a lot to like. So it is a retail business. Um, They do vet all their um, their tenants and they actually look at their financial statements to make sure that they are in good financial situation. Um, for the most part, they do have single tenant operation, which means they're um, they're not paying for uh, like the tenants are paying for pretty much everything on top of the rent. So property taxes, maintenance and a bunch of other things. Um, so very good cost certainty. Uh, they have high quality of tenants, uh, not too many retail sectors that were too badly affected by the pandemic. Um, they have a little bit in uh, like movie theaters and a few other things that have been affected, but it's just a very small portion and it pays a really nice dividend and it's been beaten down and kind of included in the retail REITs in general, but they have a lot of essential businesses. So um, if there's any, you know, if there's another shutdown, for example, most of their tenants would be able to remain open. So that's the reason why I started a position in them. Fair enough, man. I, I haven't looked deep into store, but from what I get is that the long-term leases works out for them, and it's definitely a predictable cash flow generator. 
um, yeah, makes makes sense to me. I know you like DLR, so I'm not surprised that you're adding to that position. For me, I am buying infrastructure and tech for the most part. Um, I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I I mean, I'm okay with disclosing some of this stuff because it is late in the month already at the 19th, and my my subscribers get it uh, on the first Tuesday of every month. But it's no surprise that over the last couple months, I've been buying Open Text Corporation, Eng House, Brookfield Asset Management, and WSP Global, as well as TFII, which has been an absolute huge winner uh, when I was buying it back in March. Uh, everyone was worried that logis- logistics was going to get crushed, and I thought TFI was massively, massively oversold. Um, and they're, they continued to make acquisitions all through uh, the pandemic. So they're showing some resiliency there as well. Um, WSP, I love because it's a global take on infrastructure services, which means it's really capital light. They're a Canadian based engineering firm, but they do business all over the world. Um, and they've been making some really st- strategic acquisitions as well. Um, you know why, like, bam. I mean, seriously, come on. Um, and then. The two software as a service acquires that I, I, I will continue to be buying even if they're richly valued, which is open text and Enchhouse. Those are some of the best you know technology plays in Canada in my opinion. Um, and uh, yeah, they've performed exceptional. So open text, for instance, like the recurring revenue is so strong with really, really high quality clients and they're in the right space. It's uh, it's cybersecurity, uh, cloud as a service. And not only do those things have massive tailwinds, but they have some really, really big, uh, big clients and, and really, really sticky software, uh, and on an enterprise level. So I've been buying open text for, uh, as long as I've been investing and I would continue to own it here. It's not like the explosive SaaS growth that a lot of people are looking for, but um, it is solid as a rock when it comes to that uh, recurring revenue and and the tailwinds behind them. So, if you don't own Open Text or have never heard of it, it's about a you know just under twenty billion in market cap company out of Waterloo, Ontario. They actually had a really cool um, story. It was started from um, professors at Waterloo University, and they're the name open text, they were trying to digitize the Oxford dictionary as I understand it. And this, they clearly went down some massive entrepreneurial rabbit hole, uh, once they started on that project. So it is a quite, quite a cool story local here, in Ontario and Waterloo. So if you don't know the company, the, the ticker is Otex and it's listed both, uh, in Canada and in the U S Simon, Let's talk about, we're going back to basics a little bit here on this episode. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of ratios, some rule of thumbs. Some of them are quite elementary. So if you're an experienced investor, you're going, I know what that is. That's fine. There's a lot of people here that don't. Um, and there's a lot of people that maybe earlier in your investing journey, you would have appreciated this information. And I know I would have if I was a 101. So uh, 
let's uh, let's get right into it. Price to earnings obviously is a ratio that is price divided by earnings. So this is price, the share price divided by earnings per share, and this is a real indicator of valuation on many businesses. It's probably, well, not probably, it is definitely the most used quick valuation metric. I think that it's completely misused, but it's a very good uh, first glance to get an idea of what you're talking about. So when a company's trading at 50 times earnings, my brain thinks, okay, this must be a high, very high growth business because that's expensive. Um, If it's trading at you know, 15 times earnings or less, I'm thinking, okay, this is probably an established slow grower, dividend payer, or the market hates it, uh, one of the two. So anywhere in between, it really depends, but it's not useful unless we're talking about several other factors. So I I think that's the the main thing we want to harp on is when we're talking about these ratios is almost none of them are useful completely on their own. But they're very useful in combination with each other to get a full picture of what you're dealing with. So, P.E., Simon, what, what is a typical rule of thumb of high versus low uh, when you see price-to-earnings ratios? Yeah, I mean, it, it'll depend on the, the type of business that it is. Um, uh, it could be anywhere. Like, you'll see low. So you'll see a lot of price-to-earning ratios, especially for, for banks. Um, and by the way, we've had a lot of questions about Canadian banks, and we will uh, try to do that on an episode in the next month or two. I will have to do a bit more research, just a side note. But you'll actually see banks that'll have, uh, for banks, you'll see, like, low uh, high single digits low double digits in terms of price to earnings Um, other types of business you'll see something a bit more in the like high teens in the 20s Um, anything above uh, 30 i would say starts being expensive but again um, it all depends on the sector it depends on the business Um, you should not use price to earning and i've said that before like it's uh it's completely useless if you're looking at uh like a re- real estate investment trust so the price to earnings will make it'll be all out of whack it won't make sense and that's because we've talked about it before um earnings there's depreciation and amortization and that's actually not a not it's a non-cash item so it's very misleading for those type of businesses uh, even businesses like brookfield renewable partners or brookfield infrastructure partners they're not very useful for those type of businesses um, so that's kind of my take um, it is a good metric but it has its limitations it's uh, completely useless to if the the company is not making money yet yeah, totally. If that, if the company's not making money yet, it's just there's, not applicable. Yeah, yeah there's exactly. No, there's there's no denominator, and if you were a only specific type of PE investor, uh, you would have missed Amazon the whole time because they didn't want to show profits for taxation purposes, and you'd be someone like myself ignoring Amazon because uh, they don't make any profits. So, again, it's it's a very useful metric. It's very important to understand the types of industries and rule of thumbs that exist in it. But again, it uh, cannot be used in a silo. Yeah, exactly. And for tech companies, I know you like those, like especially tech companies where the uh, reinvestment in the business and technology and all of that, it is 
you'll find those investment in the earning statement, right? So um, those companies that, yeah, if they didn't reinvest, they could be like pumping out money left and right. Well, because they're reinvesting and Amazon's a great example, um, you think it's less profitable than it is. Um, so that's why, I mean, it is a metric that can be useful, but I find that a lot of people use it incorrectly. And we've had questions about people saying like, oh, this REIT is a PE of this. Um, um, and that goes back to my previous point. Uh, it's just it get it gets thrown out there a lot. That's just my opinion on it. Yeah, like SNC Lavalin is like a two PE today. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, what do you got next for us? Okay, so next is dividend yield. Um, dividend yield. What is dividend yield? It's pretty simple. You take the uh, the total dividend paid in a year, and then you divide it by the current stock price. Um, something I like to go on, and I know Braden you like as well, is your yield on cost. So it's the same calculation, but then you look basically if you're three, four years in the future from then, and then you calculate what you're currently receiving for dividend based on your original cost. Um, it is useful, I would say, don't get mesmerized by the yield um, double digit or anything like that. If you see some high dividend yields, uh, just make sure you do your due diligence. And it doesn't have to be double digit necessarily. Um, for example, Braden, I'll ask you, like, what would be your first kind of take if you saw a tech company with a 5% dividend yield? Um, what on earth is going on? <laughs> would be my first question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and second, it would be, oh, this, this tech company, software company pays a small dividend, but, uh, the share price just went through the floor something really bad happened. And now it looks like there's a juicy dividend yield on it, but it's probably not safe. Yeah. And if I ask you the same question, there's an infrastructure company that's paying a 5% dividend yield. What's your reaction with that? It's that makes complete sense. <laughs> so <laughs> it's difficult, yeah, right? Yeah. There are these rules of thumbs. And when it comes to stability of the company and, and what growth trajectory it's on, if you have a really, really high growth company, you don't want them paying out huge percentages of, of earnings out to the, out to the dividend. Exactly. Um, and did you have anything else for the dividend yield, any rules of thumb uh, for you? I mean, I think we just got it there, right? Is, is it depends completely on the company. If it's a bank paying 4%, yeah, perfect. Uh, they're probably su sustaining that at a 40% payout ratio, which we'll talk about next. Um, but if I see that on a software company, I'm going, what's going on? They probably don't even have that much earnings. Um, and they're still in a growth phase. So it definitely depends. As soon as I see a company that's with a dividend yield of over 10%, I'm thinking there's something seriously wrong with the business typically. And I'll, I'll probably look into the payout ratio. I'll look into, you know, if the, if the stock just fell massively and on a trailing basis, that's why it's over 10%. That happens all the time. So, uh, and we saw that, you know, in, in March, when a lot of oil companies were yielding over 10% because the share price was down so much. Um, it didn't necessarily mean that you should rush to go buy dividend, uh, dividend yielders. And Canadians are obsessed with dividends. And I don't know why. Um, I love high yield on cost, but am I going out and buying a bunch of eight yielders? 8% yielders? No. Uh, unless it's a real estate investment trust, absolutely not. So moving on to the payout ratio... 
which mentioned that a couple times, is what percentage of earnings is going to support those dividend payouts? So if that's over 100%, then that means that they are paying the dividend with earnings that they didn't just collect in that quarter. So if they exceed 100%, they are burning cash reserves to pay the dividend or fueling it with debt. Um, which is not sustainable. So, I mean, if it hops over 100% based on like seasonality, the business has like cyclical seasonality and they're keeping the dividend, sure, whatever. But it cannot sustain over 100%. So as a rule of thumb, as a dividend growth investor myself, I'm looking for high yield on cost, not current dividend yield. I'm looking for low payout ratios because that's going to have lots of room to run. Uh, They're going to be able to continue to grow those payouts over time. Yeah, yeah, that's well put. Um, I personally prefer when I look at payout ratio to look at it uh, versus free cash flow, just because that gives me a good indicator of the actual cash coming in and out. And if that covers the actual dividend, Uh, again, for the same reasons I talked about uh, the price to earnings earlier, um, I find the payout ratio with price to earnings uh, with the uh, as a proportion of earnings, sorry, um, can be a bit misleading, but I'm totally with you. Um, you want to make sure the dividend is sustainable. Um, and in terms of payout ratio, I would say, again, it varies by industry. Um, again, if you have a utility that's paying 80%, it's, I mean, oftentimes that'll be fine because they have very stable uh, cash flows coming in versus like you said something that's a bit more cyclical um, that would be paying like 90 percent that's something that you should be a bit more worried about but just putting things in perspective that's uh, that's important ditto uh what what do you got next for us now with uh, return on invested capital yeah so return on invested capital is just it's very simple in its you know it's in, in its idea, if you'd like. Um, so return on invested capital, you take all the capital that's invested by the business, whether it's through debt or whether it's uh, um, new capital coming in with new share issuance or uh, reinvested um, earnings. So you just take that and you try to get the return of the those investments. So the higher the percentage, the better generally. Um, but again, that's something you'll want to compare with the, uh, the actual business itself historically. But its peers as well to see how they're doing. Yeah, completely. And a lot of famous investors have been quoted saying, you know, long term, your your returns, if you paid a fair price, should be similar to return on invested capital. And if it's trending down, um, you could argue that in a way, uh, the company's destroying value over time, which is not ideal. So you want a company that's continuing to reinvest the capital and the cash that they're generating from the business when they're injecting that back in the business. If there's a high return on them, like internal ROI for them, which is return on invested capital on on the cash flow, it's going to return long term great returns for you if they have sustained high return on invested capital. So you see businesses with, you know, north of 20, 30% return on invested capital, like some of the best businesses in the world. And those are really, really nice long-term compounders. Again, that, that that's a really high number, but they do exist out there. 
Yeah, we'll put. Uh, so the next one we'll look at is the price to book. So that is one that is used quite a bit still. Um, there's a lot of limitation to price to book. So price to book is basically net assets. So how do you calculate net asset in terms of the book value? Um, you just take the total asset and you subtract liabilities. And then whatever number you have left would be the book value of the business. And then you just compare the market cap compared to the book value of the business. Um, so typically, That'll be a much better ratio uh, when you look at banks, for example. So financial institution, very useful. Insurance companies as well. Um, companies that have a lot of like heavy hat assets. Um, so if you look at uh, even utilities could be useful in terms of price to book. But it's another one that I find uh, like it gets thrown around. And for certain type of businesses, it's completely useless. And tech is probably one of those. Whereas a lot of the assets for a tech business is actually uh, intellectual property or intangible assets. So you will oftentimes get like a price to book that's all out of whack for uh, for those types of companies. Um, yeah, that's about my take on it. Uh, what about you, Braden? Yeah, it's very useful in some businesses like you mentioned uh, buffett tries to buy back a bunch of stock when it's trading close to book value uh makes sense it's an insurance business primarily a lot of it is anyways um versus a tech company if it's priced a tangible book there's basically they're very very asset light uh so that that metric's going to look completely outrageous can be very very high um, but again, those their assets are not similar to a manufacturer that has plant property and equipment. Um, so again, not useful at all. But uh, you summarized that well. Moving on, the one of the most important when you're first looking at a company to understand, is this a big business? Is this a small business? Is this a medium-sized business? Is obviously market cap or market capitalization, which is share price versus outstanding shares. That'll give you the total value uh, the stock market is assigning it. Um, and I also want to compare that to what is also thrown around as enterprise value. And enterprise value is just market market cap, versus, and then you add on all their debt, all their liabilities. So the reason why you do that is if enterprise value is if, is the number that uh, you know, like a PE firm would look at when they're buying a company because they're going to also take on all the liabilities. So if they have two hundred million in debt, they're going to have to service that debt if they buy that corporation. So that's why some people use enterprise value to understand, um, you know, their liabilities as well as the market cap if they were to buy the business outright. If there's a big discrepancy between the market cap and the enterprise value, it probably means, or it does mean actually, that the company is carrying a lot of debt. Yeah, well put. Um, I mean, personally, I like to use um, market cap for, uh, not necessarily that I don't like to use uh, enterprise value, but I love uh, just... If I'm looking at a business for the first time, I'll just look at the market cap, first of all. And then I'm trying to, like, as a very first step, just to think, okay, this type of company does ABCD in terms of services or whatever it does. There is a current, you know, $5 billion market cap. 
in 10 years from now, can I realistically expect the company to be 25 billion, 30 billion, whatever the multiplier is? And that'll give me a decent idea of what at least I could potentially expect in terms of growth trajectory for, for the business. Yeah, good point. Um, because today, August 19th, Apple hit $2 trillion, <laughs> $2 trillion in market capitalization, um, which is absolutely absurd. And I would have looked at the company at $1 trillion when they did and went, how can they possibly, you know, bag again? And when I say bag, I just mean like multiply. And that was 100% ago and not that long. So uh, <laughs> good kudos to Apple. They're definitely crushing it. But so you can think about, is this business really worth that price um, in, a, in a large scale? Because share price means absolutely nothing. And that's why when we tell you stock splits mean nothing, it's because it does not affect the market cap at all. Although everyone who owns Tesla thinks that it matters. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> you had to put Tesla in there. Huh? Yeah, we had to throw it in there. Um, tell us about uh, some capital structure metrics. Okay, so uh, let's go for uh, debt to equity ratio. So that is one that is thrown around. Another one that uh, you'll you guys will hear a lot. Um, debt to equity. It's pretty simple. You take the uh, total shareholder equity and then you compare it to the debt. Um, some people will compare it strictly to the debt. Some people will compare it strict uh, to. Lo- liabilities as a whole um, I personally do it a little differently than those I do like uh, when I calculate the equity I tend to like to subtract um, any goodwill because um, to me that doesn't provide much value in terms of assets and usually ends up being written down anyways um, and then I'll look at it versus uh, total liability so I like to look at all liabilities not the debt um, it's a good thing to, to look at again um, if you're using it, just make sure you're consistent in the way you're using it and you compare the company with itself in the past, but also the company with its peers. And, and it'll give you a good idea in terms of, okay, like how does it look in terms of, uh, you know, is it financially stable? Can they withstand uh, some big turbulation to their business? Um, or will they have trouble making their interest payments? Or if the debt comes due, having trouble financing that. So it's uh, it's it's very it's a good metric for that just to give you an idea of, of what it is if it's stable financially. Yeah, totally. And ideally, I like that you mentioned it's, it depends on the business because ideally, you know, have companies trading at over one, which would be more debt than equity, uh, more debt than equity. But if it's a company uh, like a telco or a power utility that has super, super stable cash flows and, requires a lot of capital investment to run the business that's not surprising or scary but uh if those if it's not a cash flowing machine like those two industries then you might be a little bit concerned moving on another balance sheet ratio is the current ratio one that everyone and their dog was looking at the start of the pandemic because we thought there was going to be widespread uh, bankruptcies and illiquidity which you know there was there's definitely been some and there will be more but um, that is just current assets over current liabilities and current just means for assets it is cash 
or things that can be converted into cash within one year uh, in generally accepted accounting principles. So it's thought of as cash, or you can at least extract cash out of that uh, within a year. So if that is high, that is good. You have more current assets to service current liabilities, and those liabilities are due within one year. So if there's a really, really low current ratio, I'm like, what is going on? Why do they have so much high current uh liabilities and why don't they have any cash on the balance sheet to service that so i'm definitely doing a deeper dive or walking away from that investment if that's too low yeah i mean uh i totally agree with that i don't think i have much to add for that one all right <laughs> um so the next one so price to sale um price to sale we've talked about that a lot um it's used a whole lot specifically in the tech sector um it's used in other sectors as well but tech sector is really good because of some of the things we mentioned before a lot of these companies are not profitable when you look at their actual earnings again some of them are actually cash flow positive even though they're showing as not profitable to earnings but because of that the price to sell will give you a good valuation metric uh, when comparing it to some of its uh, let's take tech companies some of its tech peers um, in terms of sales, one of the things we always look at, Braden and I, and we've mentioned it before, you want to see those sales increase from year to year. That's always a good indicator. Um, you want to also be able to make sure that the increase is sustainable for the, at least the medium to long, medium term, but I would say long term. Um, and you know, a lot of people will do the mistake of projecting those high growth rates very, very long term. Reality is, is oftentimes you can have some high growth rates and then you think it's going to continue like that for the foreseeable future. And then, bam, you have a deceleration, which doesn't mean that it's no longer increasing, but it's increasing at a lower rate. And what will happen is those stocks will usually have that growth rate priced in so you can get a pretty severe drop if there's a, even a small slowdown that doesn't look too major. Um, so that's it's a really useful metric uh, from that perspective, though. Um, any comments on that, Braden? Yeah, price to sales ratios in the tech sector have been absolutely stretched um, into places I thought they would never go, but here we are. Um, and it's used so often, obviously, in tech is because, one, a lot of them are fast-growing and don't show profits and, and don't intend on showing profits because they're still getting high returns on invested capital, like very, very high. Um, so they don't have any – there's no PE. So where do you go next? Uh, you go price to sales. You, can't, there's all, you also can't use price to book. So what are you going to use? So when it comes to uh, venture capital as well, when companies are being bought out on private sales, they're typically bought out on multiples of their sales. So, oh, yep, company X went for seven times revenue or seven times sales, same thing. So that's that's where that comes from in terms of the multiple of, of their revenue. And you're seeing very high price of sales right now, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. Some of these companies demand those those premiums because they, they should be trading at those premiums. I have a question for you. You, you, you touched on revenue increase. What number, and I have, a, I have a number in mind, what number do you look at in terms of year-over-year year compound annual growth rate of revenue and think, 
It's the tipping point between a growing business and a fast growing business. Oh, wow. That's a good question. Spot, yeah, man. exactly. We did not discuss that full disclosure. Uh, <laughs> I'm taking, yeah. I got to keep Just stalling toes, a little man. bit before I answer. Um, I don't know. I, I feel for me, it's probably when it slows, um, probably double digit. Um, so if it's, you know, 10, 15% is probably the threshold from like fast growing to extremely fast growing, uh, in my opinion. But again, I think it's a bit arbitrary. Uh, so what numbers do you have in mind, Braden? It is arbitrary, but you nailed it. I was going to say the exact same thing. I think anything under 10%, I'm thinking, okay, it's a growing business. Between, this is assuming it's between zero and 10, um, that it's a growing business, but not a fast growing business. 10 to 20% year over year. I'm thinking, yeah, this is a fast growing business. And then everything over 20% a year is like, yeah, these are, these are really fast growing businesses. If they can sustain those growth rates for sure. Um, and on that same note is, when it comes to valuation and these tech companies, software as a service primarily with big revenue growth and very high price to sales ratios, potentially, who knows, being stretched too far, you could make that argument, is they all do have something that pretty, pretty common amongst them, which is very, very high margins and very high gross margins. And what that means is it's just, the percentage of the uh, revenue that's trickling down after they pay for like actual product costs or like what people call cost of goods sold. So for a software company that does not have to provide input costs for manufacturing and these kinds of things, they have really, really low cost of goods sold to provide that software as a service. They might have lots of other costs down the lower on the income statement, don't get me wrong. But the actual scalability, once they acquire customers, is really, really nice because those gross margins are so high. So you're seeing lots of software north of 70, north of 80, even close to 90% gross margins, meaning that you know the actual product cost is like 10% on a 90% gross margin. So Depending on the industry, you're going to see different gross margins. But if you can see that continually go up, it means one of two things. They have pricing power, so they're able to demand higher prices um, without the customer getting upset. And that is going to increase the gross margin. Or they're really good at refining their supply chain, refining their process, and getting cost of goods sold down. So I like to see an increase in gross margins. Um, it's one of my favorite metrics to look at to understand what kind of business it is and how effective they are at uh, turning revenue into down the line eventually into free cash flow. But it's going to start with cost of goods sold, and that's going to be reflected in the gross margin. Yeah, I mean, not much chat on that, so uh, I'll go to I'll go to the <laughs> next. Give us one. the next one. Yeah, exactly. So the next one, uh, that's one I do uh, like to look at, especially for businesses that have some debt. Um, I mentioned that because there are businesses that uh, have either very low or no debt. Um, so interest payments, so the um, amount of their interest payments had compared to their uh, EBITDA. So EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. 
organization. So the higher that number, the better it is. Um, and again, that's something you want to compare with the business itself in the past and its peers to see how they're doing. Uh, but what that really tells you is how many, how much money or how how many times they actually cover their interest payments compared to their their EBITDA. And it's just a good way to look at it personally that I find just to give give me an idea whether they're having trouble making those interest payments and there could be trouble down the line. If I see that number shrinking a whole lot from year to year, that's uh, some alarm bells. Or if I see that number is really low in terms of uh, EBITDA, sorry, I had it reverse EBITDA compared to interest payments. Um, if I see that number gets lower and lower, um, there could be a lot of warning signs. So that's just one that I like to keep an eye on to make sure that you know, the company is not heading towards bankruptcy or anything like that. This is one that I want to start using after you brought it up and, and haven't previously because it's a pretty creative way to understand some fundamentals of their balance sheet by actually looking at their income statement. If I, if I understand it correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It just gives you a quick idea of, uh, yeah, like if they can actually make those payments. And it's good to look over an extended period as well, just to get an idea whether it's going up or down. So uh, it's one that I like. You don't have to, you don't need a specific number, but comparing it is, it will give you a good idea whether it makes it's, you know, it's an alarm bell or it's trending the right, uh, right direction for that company. All right, guys, we've been blabbing your guys ear off for the better part of an hour now i hope you guys saw find lots of value in this episode there's lots of lots of ratios that we could talk about um there's you know an infinite amount you can manipulate it any way you want but these are some of the ones that i'm always looking at simon's always looking at to understand the business on the very, very surface. And these are also really useful metrics to screen on. Um, and then you can really, really do your research. And all of these numbers are quantitative in nature, of course. So then the fun, the art part of investing comes in is, okay, I understand how fast it's growing. I understand some margins. I understand if the, you know, the, if they pay a dividend, if it's safe or not, I understand the valuation, but what core to the business, the actual model, the actual business model is the kind of the next understanding that you got to do. And that's what comes down to the, the, the fun part of investing is once you have that statistical understanding, uh, and the, the quantitative fundamentals of the business, it's growing at X amount, it's valued at this amount. Now you're going to look at the actual moat that the business may have um, and, and hope that there is a moat so that it can fend off competitors, uh, have pricing power, and continue to compound long term. So that's, that's round two, but we hope that these numbers will give you an idea and at least a rule of thumb uh, when it comes to investing. Would you say, Simon, when it comes to coming up with a rule of thumb for these types of uh, numbers that you see across different industries and stuff like that. Would you say you picked that all up from just looking at different businesses and, and actual investing experience or did you go to a specific resource for that? Yeah, no, it's definitely just uh, experience and looking at the data, right? So I think that's the most important thing. I've said it before, compare specific businesses to 
their peers in the same sector or that are very similar compare it to themselves if they have a long history and look how those ratios look and if they're trending in the right direction um, you can also compare it historically versus an index of your choice whether it's the S&P 500 the S&P TSX whatever it is these are all things that will help you put those numbers in perspective but our purpose today was just to let you know yeah, some of the ones we use but also the limitations of some of the ratios as we mentioned some of them will be uh, more useful for certain type of businesses than others yeah totally 100 percent. all right guys that does it for this week we will see you next week again reminder Go ahead and give us five stars. Leave us a nice review if you appreciate the content. Uh, we appreciate everyone reaching out via email, Twitter. Uh, we really appreciate it. But you know what you can also do? Just go leave us five stars, write a nice review. Tell us where you listen to the podcast, why. And we appreciate it a lot. We'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Canadian Investor. To get a list of the top Canadian dividend stocks right now and other valuable investing resources, go to GetStockMarket.com.